This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. As we continue our series of studies in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we enter the final chapter of that, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 today, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use... It will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you that this is your word, and we pray that as we think about it this morning, that your spirit who inspired it would lead us into a deeper understanding of it, an application of it. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We do not sit in judgment on your word, but it sits in judgment on us. And so, Father, give us hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us this morning from the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most people, uh, even those who are not particularly familiar with the Bible, know at least one verse, familiar with at least one verse out of the Scriptures, and I'm not thinking of those who cite God helps those who help themselves as being in the Bible. Of course, it's not. Uh, But aside from that, there are those who, though quite unfamiliar with the Scriptures, at least are familiar with some verse, Uh, For many, uh, particularly in the past, but even today, they are familiar with John 3.16, if for no other reason than they see that reference behind goalposts at football games on the television. Maybe had gone and looked it up, or at least know John 3.16. But there's another verse that people, even though otherwise unacquainted with the scriptures, uh, are familiar with, maybe even quote, And it is from the passage that is before us this morning. Judge not, lest you be judged. And having authoritatively cited Jesus, they rest their case. Now, this verse has been misunderstood and therefore misapplied by many for a very long time. In fact... This verse has been used to defend, to excuse all kinds of sinful behavior, presumably with Jesus' own approval. But what's the verse really saying? What is Jesus really saying in this passage and in that verse that is so frequently quoted, honestly, to say the very opposite of what Jesus means to say and does say in this passage. Well, that's what we want to look at today. Uh, We do enter this final chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, 
As we've looked at the, the sermon, these three chapters, we've seen that the first chapter, chapter 5, it really is concerned with righteousness, with our character, summarized in the Beatitudes, and then going on where Jesus says that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, and then Jesus' own uh, explanation of the law, his exposition of the law, and the true divine intent in the law, what it was that God had in mind, scraping away the barnacles of men's traditions that had uh, encrusted themselves on the law and in many ways distorted the law to allow the very thing the law, God's law, actually prohibited. Well, if chapter 5 is concerned with righteousness, chapter 6, we could say, is concerned with devotion. Jesus talks here about acts of piety, of giving and fasting. And praying, and of course, in the context of that, he gives that elaboration on prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And then in the second part of the chapter, the whole object of our devotion, uh, the Lord himself not being given over to things, to wealth, to possessions, but seeking first the Lord God, the living God and his kingdom, trusting that he will provide us with everything else that we need. Well, if chapter 5 is speaking of righteousness, chapter 6 speaking of our devotion, uh, someone said, and I, and I think they're, they're, tr- they're right here, I think it's accurate to say that chapter 7 has to do with wisdom in the Christian life. Wisdom particularly, uh, as it has to do uh, with our response to other people, particularly other brothers and sisters in Christ, wisdom in our times of need, regarding salvation, wisdom regarding false teachers, false prophets, and wisdom toward the end of the chapter regarding uh, the teachings of Scripture, Jesus' own teaching, wisdom in how we interact with all of these things. And so we begin this morning with verses 1 through 5 on Jesus' teaching uh, about wisdom in our dealings with one another, particularly in this whole matter of judging one another or judging other people. Well, as we look at verses 1 through 5, we see that Jesus, in the first place in verse 1, gives us a principle, kind of lays down, the as he's accustomed to doing, gives the principle and then explains it and applies it. It's exactly what we have here. He gives the principle in verse 1, and then in verses 1 and 2, he gives the reason for that principle, and then in verses 3 through 5, he applies the principle, gives us an application of the principle so that we see how we are to put this into effect in our lives, in our relationships with each other. So first of all, then, the principle that Jesus lays down, uh, just two words here in the ESV uh, translation, actually in Greek too, judge not. Or if you want to be more prosaic like the NIV, do not judge. Well, what is Jesus saying here? As we've said, many have misunderstood these words uh, to excuse all kind of behavior uh, or to allow all kinds of behavior. After all, Who am I to judge another? Who are you to judge me? And that seems to be the predominant uh, spirit of our age. So we need to understand what Jesus is saying. Well, one of the best ways to understand what Jesus is saying is to clear the deck of those things that he's not saying. What is Jesus not saying when he says, judge not? Well, in the first place, it should be obvious as we interpret these words in light of the whole of Scripture That Jesus is not saying here that we cannot label certain behavior or certain actions 
as wrong, as inappropriate, as offensive, as sinful. Jesus is not saying here that we cannot label certain behavior or actions as wrong. The Bible itself and other places clearly does that. It tells us not to commit adultery. It tells us not to steal. It tells us not to covet. It tells us not to commit adultery, not to commit fornication. It tells us not to lust. It tells us not to covet. All these things, to do them is sin. The Bible tells us to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to fail to do those things is sin. It's wrong. And so the Bible itself manifestly, plainly, labels some behavior as right and good, other behavior as wrong and bad because they violate the law. Of God. And the law of God itself is our standard here. And of course, the law reflects the character of God. And so, certainly, Jesus isn't saying we can't label certain behaviors as wrong or sinful. Nor is Jesus saying here that we cannot confront someone about his sin. In fact, as we'll see, just the opposite in this passage. But in other places, Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. His fault between you and him alone. Luke 17.3 says, if he sins, and that itself, of course, is an evaluation of his behavior. If he sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, we live in a day when political correctness reigns, when it is completely unfashionable to draw a line in the sand and to say, this is wrong. In fact, not only is it unfashionable to do so, our society in many ways has lost the ability to do so. Our society no longer has a sense of a transcendent or a binding or an overarching sense of what is right and what is wrong. We have reduced all of it to mere preference. How can you say that my preferences are right or wrong? After all, who are you to judge? And so having lost a sense of a transcendent standard, an overarching standard, an absolute standard, that's all we're left with as a society is preference. But the Bible makes two things very clear. Because God labels things as sin, we can do so. And because Scripture calls us to do it, we can and should, in the right circumstances, call someone to account for his sin and to repent of it, and all without violating. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Nor is Jesus, the third thing he's not saying here, is that Jesus is not saying we can't determine that a certain teaching, or even an entire religion, is wrong, is in error, or is heretical. You know, I remember, and I was talking about this with somebody recently, um, the, the R.C. Sproul video series, Choosing My Religion. It's actually geared toward high school students. Uh, as an adult, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, we have, have it in the library, I think. Um, but Dr. Sproul makes a statement in those videos that I think is, is dead on. And he was talking about the freedom of religion that we have in, in our society, under our Constitution. And the statement he made was this. The government gives you the right to be wrong. 
God never gives you the right to be wrong. And as it applies in this passage, what he's saying and what Scripture says is that not every particular or peculiar idea or whim you have about God is true. And not every religion out there holds to truth. In fact, if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, anything that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture is false. It is wrong. You see, even religion has been reduced to, to the level of mere preference. It's what I like to think about God, regardless of what Scripture says. But you see, this passage and what Jesus is saying here doesn't say that we can't say, no, you're wrong. What you're saying does not measure up to what Scripture says. Uh, and cults, Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth, are wrong. They're off base. They're misguided. They're deceived. Politically incorrect to say so, but the Bible's never been too particularly concerned about being politically correct. God is true, and he speaks truth. And what he says is right. Uh, Paul put it this way to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And later he warns of those who will not put up with sound doctrine. And so Jesus is not saying here we can't make judgments and evaluations about people's behavior and beliefs. We can. This does not apply in that way. In fact, Jesus would be violating his own teaching if that were the case, where in verse 6 he refers to people as dogs. In fact, before that in verse 5 he refers to people as hypocrites. And in verse 15 refers to people as false prophets. Rather, quite a judgment, don't you think, about the character of people. And so that's not what he's saying. Well, what is he saying? What Jesus is saying here is that we're not to judge others in the sense of condemning them as persons, in the sense of passing judgment on them. He has in mind here, uh, our having, and this is John Stott's word, I think it's a good word, although a big word, a censorious attitude toward them. Stott defines that this way, and I think this is, this is absolutely brilliant. He says, censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. Worse than that, to be censorious is to set oneself up as a censor and so to claim the competence and authority to sit in judgment upon one's fellow men. To be censorious is to presume arrogantly to anticipate the day of judgment, to usurp the prerogative of the divine judge, in fact, to try to play God. In other words, what Jesus is addressing here is our tendency to set ourselves up as a standard as if other people are accountable ultimately to us, and pass off the divine the, the, the judgment upon them that rightly belongs to God himself, to the divine. Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus confirms this interpretation where he says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So the point here is not that we can't make evaluations of things based on God's word. It's rather that we are not to be judgmental toward the person in the sense of looking, and, and often with a sense of glee or self-righteousness, looking for something in a person to criticize 
and to condemn. So Jesus, to put it shortly, is not saying we can't make judgments about things. He's saying we are not to be judgmental toward people. So that's the first, the principle here. Well, let's look at the reason behind the principle. Why does Jesus say this? Well, judge not, he says, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, there's an interpretive question here. Who is it who will bring the judgment on us? Some have suggested that Jesus is referring here to men, to people. In other words, judge not, don't judge others harshly so that they will not judge you harshly. Uh, With the judgment you pronounce on others, they will judge you. With the measure you use, they will measure toward you. There's some truth to that. If we are if we are a critical, harsh, judgmental kind of person, then it's certainly true that other people are going to be less gracious and generous in their in their evaluations and judgments of us, just because that's human nature. And in fact, we see this all the time when you have uh, public figures, political leaders, religious figures who are espousing so-called traditional values or morality, and they themselves are found to be in violation of them, sometimes blatantly so, then the world goes crazy you know, with charges of hypocrisy and, and condemns and laughs and ridicules, and in one sense rightly so, and that's the kind of thing that's going on here because they see such people as judgmental themselves, And so when the world has the opportunity to judge, they do so with great enjoyment. But is that what Jesus is referring to here? It seems to me not. It seems that he's referring here to the divine judgment, not to other people's assessment and response to us, but to God's. Judge not that you be not judged by God, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged by God, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you by God. The Lord. It seems, because of the context, best to understand it in that way. And certainly, the scriptures bear this out. We looked not too long ago at Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember the servant owed this impossibly large debt to his master, to the king, couldn't pay it back, and he pleaded with the man, and the king forgave him, said, forget the whole debt. And then the servant turns around to his fellow servant, who owes him a rather small sum, certainly by comparison, And the man says, I'll pay you, just give me a little more time. And the servant says, no. And he has him thrown in debtor's prison. Well, some other servants go and tell the king who hears about this man's behavior. And he rescinds his forgiveness of the debt. And he takes the man and he throws him in jail and says, that's what you'll be until you've paid the last penny. And then Jesus ends the parable by saying, so will my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now, the point is not, of course, that we earn forgiveness by being forgiving. The point is that someone who has experienced God's grace in, in forgiving our eternal sin debt is going to have a hard time being ungracious and unforgiving toward others because we ourselves have experienced a magnificent forgiveness. And anyone who does not have that gracious and forgiving spirit toward others most likely has not experienced truly the grace of God themselves. It's inconsistent. We sense that from the parable, although sometimes we miss that in our own lives. But it seems that that's the dynamic that is at work here. Well, it's that principle that's in play. Uh, Think of it this way. 
Do you want God to be as quick to condemn you as you are to condemn others? Do you want God to be as unforgiving and exacting toward you as you are toward others? Do you want God to look at everything you do in the worst possible light as we sometimes do toward others? Well, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Do you want God to use the same measure toward you that you use toward other people or toward certain people? That's what Jesus is asking here. In the book of Esther, you may recall how Haman, court official, became very angry at Mordecai the Jew because Mordecai refused to bow down to him when he passed along on his way. And so in his hatred of Mordecai, he wanted to kill him. And not only kill him, but kill his people, the Jews. And so he had King Ahasuerus pass an edict that would accomplish just that. And uh, Haman was egged on by his family to have a, a gallows built on which to hang Mordecai at the first opportunity. Well, Esther, the queen, a Jew, revealed what Haman had done and that even she herself was in danger because of the king's edict. The king, Ahasuerus, was absolutely furious with Haman. And he had him hanged on the gallows he himself had built. Well, what Jesus is saying here in verse 2 is that the gallows you build may be your own. So be careful. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. It does kind of make us want to treat others with a little more grace and kindness and generosity, does it not? Well, certainly in this, as in all things, God shows us tremendous grace. Well, then Jesus comes to the application of the principle. The principle, judge not, the reason is because that God will deal with us with the same measure, the same standard as which we deal with others. And our treatment of others is a reflection of our experience of and our appreciation of the grace of God toward us. But then Jesus, in verses 3 through 5, comes to the application. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's a great picture, isn't it? I mean, that Jesus paints here. God says to the fellow next to him, here, you got a little speck of sawdust in your eye. Let me go after that for you. And in the meantime, he's got this two by four plank stuck out of his own eye. It's kind of, you know, it sounds almost like the stuff of youth group skits. Just the the exaggeration, the humor of it. And yet the point is not humorous. The illustration is humorous, but Jesus' point is not. And the point is this, how well we see 2020 vision when it comes to the faults of other people, but how blind we are to our own not-so-small faults. It's a result of our fallen nature. We see very clearly every fault in the people around us and are totally blind to our own. Well, a classic, the classic, perhaps, biblical example of this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember where uh, the prophet uh, Nathan comes to confront King David about his sin with Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, uh, her husband, and his murder. And Nathan takes the indirect approach, and he tells King David a story about two men, one man, a poor man, had one little sheep, a rich man who had many sheep, many cattle, 
uh, lots of animals, but this poor man had one sheep, and the sheep was like a member of the family. He loved it. It was like a daughter to him. And one day, a traveler comes along to the rich man, and he's got all of these sheep, all of these animals, but he goes to the poor man, he takes his one little beloved sheep, and he kills it and serves it up as a meal for his guest. Well, David, of course, thinking this is something to happen in the kingdom, one of his subjects is absolutely aflame with anger against this man. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He thundered in his self-righteousness. And you know Nathan's answer. Nathan says to him, you are the man. Well, what Jesus is saying here in verse 3, verse 4 You are the man. You are the woman. The very thing you condemn in another. Is that in your life? Often it is. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You who condemn another for his sin, do you commit the same sin? Do you do the same thing and worse? Are you looking at the speck in someone's eye and don't see that two by four plank in your own eye? That's what Jesus is saying here. Notice two things. Notice, first of all, his response to such behavior in verse 5. You hypocrite. Ouch. Because that's the word that Jesus used toward the Pharisees, right? You hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. Well, he applies that same word toward his disciples here. In our tendency to see the tiniest fault in others and miss the large faults in ourselves. He calls us Hypocrites, And indeed, we, when we're like that, earn the title. But also notice his instruction here. Jesus does not say, you just need to ignore that. You need to deal with your sin. You need to ignore that speck. That's not what he says, is it? Jesus tells us here to take the speck from our brother's eye. Doesn't say ignore it. Doesn't say just let it slide. He says, remove it. He says, take it out. As Christians... We do have an obligation toward a brother or sister in Christ to confront them about sin in their lives when necessary, wisely, in the right circumstances, with love. Jesus says to do that. But he does give a qualification, doesn't he? You must address your own sins first. Now, Jesus isn't saying you have to be perfect. He doesn't have to say you have to have everything worked out in your own life perfectly before you address the sins in the life of another. If that were true, none of us could ever correct anybody. That's not what he's saying. But he does say that you need to recognize your own sin and be dealing with, have dealt with, and be dealing with sin in your own life before you attempt to work with others in addressing the sins in their lives. And there's more to it than just that. To the person who is, to go back to where we started, poor in spirit, who sees himself as truly spiritually bankrupt before God, not self-righteous, 
not commending himself to God, but seeing himself as having nothing to offer God, as being spiritually bankrupt before God, such a person, his own sins, will always seem larger to him and more grievous to him than will the sins of others. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You see, it's the self-righteous who's looking down on the sins and all these others around him. But the person who is, who is poor in spirit is under such conviction of his own sin, sees so clearly his own faults and shortcomings and failures before the Lord, that he hardly has the vision left to see the sins in others. When Paul described himself as the chief, the worst of sinners, that wasn't just a rhetorical flourish. Paul had stood before the king of kings. He had been exposed just as Isaiah had been. And he saw himself as the most vile and sinful human being on the earth. It didn't stop him from correcting the sins of others. But I'll tell you this much. He didn't do it out of self-righteousness. He did it with a profound sense of his own sinfulness and his own failings first. You see, the person who is poor in spirit sees logs in his own eye. Specks in the eyes of another. You see, a sense of our own sinfulness goes a long way in making us more patient and more gracious toward the sins of others. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not even a, a, the, the primacy of addressing our own sins first. It's the question of do you truly see yourself as sinful before God? Are you poor in spirit? Are you under conviction about your own sins? Because only when you are, are you then qualified to speak to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ about sins in their own lives in a way that is not motivated by or in a way that doesn't come across as self-righteous and critical and harsh. We need to be at the place before Christ where we see the logs in our own eye and specks, if that, in the eyes of others. Barbara shared with me a thought, actually, that she'd heard from someone else sometime back that's actually been very helpful to me and, and kept coming to mind in my study of this passage. And the thought is this. There's always at least one thing you don't know about other people, about someone you're talking to, about someone you may know well or someone you don't know at all. There's always at least one thing you don't know. And so when another person bothers you or aggravates you or annoys you in some way, remember this. There's something, at least one thing about them that you don't know. That person may be very aware of and struggling hard against the sins that you see in their lives. They may be experiencing or have experienced great pain or great loss or upheaval in their lives that they're wrestling with at that very moment. God simply may be sanctifying other aspects of their character right now than that fault that you see in them and are so concerned about. There's always in somebody at least one thing you don't know. That's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians, what we read earlier. He says, I don't even judge myself, but who are these others to, to be judging me? They don't know. I answer to Christ. I don't even judge myself because ultimately my evaluation really doesn't matter. It's what Christ thinks. Well, you don't know what's going on in the heart of someone. You don't know what's going on in the family of someone or with their children or with their parents or with the circumstances in their lives. And it's helpful to think of that and to remember that. And it tends to make us perhaps a little more patient 
in dealing with others, there's always at least one at least one thing you don't know about what's going on in their lives. But there are at least a couple things we do know. We do know that God wants us to be harder on our own sins than we are on the sins and shortcomings of others. And we also know that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover both. Let's pray. Father, it is ludicrous, as Jesus paints this picture, that we, as sinful as we are, would presume to set ourselves up as the judge of others, to be condemning and critical. Certainly, Lord, we want to evaluate everything by the light of your word, to call sin, sin, to call evil, evil, to call what is good, good. But, Lord, you are the judge. Ultimately, we all answer to you. We are accountable to each other, but we answer ultimately to you. Father, I pray for myself, for all of us here, that you would show us more and more our own sin. Give us eyes to see ourselves more as you see us, not all at once, lest we be undone, but certainly more and more that we might repent and confess and be at work on our sins, even as you are at work in us. But Father, give us a spirit of compassion and graciousness and patience toward husband, wife, children, parents, friend, classmate, co-worker, to be gracious in our dealings with them, always dealing with ourselves first, always dealing with our own sins first. Father, I pray that we truly would be poor in spirit before you, filled with the righteousness of Christ, filled with the grace of Christ, cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, be equipped to deal responsibly and maturely with one another. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Please forgive us for our sins in this area. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.